if you want to go ahead and open up the Galatians chapter 4, that is where we'll be. All right, I'll pray for us. Father, we do thank you for the privilege of being able to be your children, be here this morning to enjoy one another, to enjoy the opportunity to worship you and study your word. And just pray that as we go to your truth, that you would penetrate our hearts with these truths, change our lives, uh, grow us in our love for you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, Galatians chapter 4, that's where we'll be this morning. And hopefully you know that by now that Galatians is Paul defending that we are justified by faith apart from legalistic works of the law. Which is important because the natural tendency, like we talked about, for human beings is for us to underestimate our own sinfulness, overestimate our righteousness, underestimate God's holiness and his requirements for our lives. And so because of these misestimations as people, we are prone to think that in some way we can make ourselves right with God. But the gospel tells us that it is actually impossible because God's standard is perfect righteousness. And we all fall short of the standard. And while that at first glance sounds like bad news, the gospel, the good news is that Jesus Christ is God himself taking on human flesh. He was sent by the Father to fulfill the perfect righteousness that we never could fulfill. And our sins were placed upon Christ who lived a sinless, perfect life, but our sins were placed upon him and he paid the penalty for those sins on the cross. And through faith, what Paul teaches us is that through faith, a transaction takes place. A transaction where the righteous life that Christ lived is credited to us, whereby we meet God's standard, and the sinful life we lived is credited to Christ who paid the penalty for those sins through his death on the cross. And this justification we now have, this transaction, Paul tells us, is completed through faith in God in his redemptive act. In, in Galatians, Paul is defending this truth specifically against the Judaizers who would like to add something to it. They would like to add an element of human merit. For the Judaizers specifically, that element was the Old Testament law. But we know throughout human history, whether it's the Old Testament law or something else, people have continually tried to twist and pervert and distort the gospel by in some way trying to add an element of human merit to it. And Paul is contradicting that error, saying, no, nothing can be added to faith. To add to faith is heresy. And for the Judaizers specifically, to try to add the Old Testament law, what Paul has been teaching us in the past few weeks in Galatians chapter 3, is that this is even a misunderstanding of what the Old Testament law was always about. It's a misunderstanding of 
the entire purpose of the Old Testament law. So you look at chapter 3 and verses 1 to 5, Paul first reminds the Galatians of where they have come from, that they have come to salvation, they have come to this right relationship with God through faith. And then in verses 6 to 9 of chapter 3, he shows even the Old Testament saints, who the Judaizers would show us as potentially being their examples of trying to earn God's favor through the keeping of the law, Paul points to them and says, even by the, for them, salvation came by faith. And the promises that were made to them come by faith. Abraham was put out there as the case study for Paul. Uh, before, just centuries before the law came, Abraham was declared right with God by faith. And that the promises that God made to Abraham, to his descendants, were to be obtained through faith. And so that does bring up the question, well, what was the point of the law then, right? And in chapter 3, Paul um, ends by really explaining that the point of the law was to lead us to Christ. It was the tutor that led us to Christ. The law... When we look at it, it shows us the nature of God's holiness. It it shows us the nature of righteousness. And when you look at the holiness of God, it's demonstrated throughout the scriptures. And you look at the sinfulness of man as demonstrated throughout the scriptures. What the Old Testament made crystal clear was as the human race, we needed another hope. We needed another way to God, that this natural temptation as human beings to think that we could possibly be good enough to earn God's favor, there's just no chance. Look at the holiness of God. Look at the inevitable sinfulness of man. Even the most godly men and the most godly women of the Old Testament have lives deeply polluted with sin. And if we're honest about our own lives, each and every one of us have lives deeply polluted by sin. And so what the Old Testament made crystal clear was that we are in need of another hope. And that hope is the righteousness obtained through faith in Jesus Christ. And what the Old Testament does is it shuts up all of us under sin. Uh, You look at Romans chapter 1 to 3, Paul really, Romans is his most thorough exposition of the theology of the gospel. And before Paul really gets into it, he spends the first three chapters just showing how whether Jew or Gentile, we are all slaves to sin. We are all condemned under the law. It is through faith in Christ. And what's beautiful about the gospel is justice doesn't get ignored. The penalty is still paid, but it was paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. One of my favorite verses, Romans 3.26, that in Jesus Christ, God would be both the just, or both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Christ is where it all comes together. That's what Paul's point in Galatians is. The Old Testament 
it all comes together in Jesus Christ. The, the mystery of the gospel and just the infinite wisdom of God seen in the gospel is that it all comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The perfect standard of righteousness is kept. The penalty for sin is paid. Justice is not ignored. The penalty is paid. And it is, it is in God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. It is all of God. It is God redeeming humanity to himself through himself. One of my favorite things about the passage we're going to look at today, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, is we are going to see the whole Trinity in action. All three members of the Trinity, we see that they each have a role in this redemptive plan. And in chapter 4, Paul is going to strike very deeply at the implications that the gospel has for us in our day-to-day lives. Just in the way we get to experience life. That the gospel, it's about salvation and so much more salvation, and so much more. And I love that Paul does this so often in all his letters, and really the Bible as a whole does this because God's the author working through these men that wrote the Bible. But God is always showing us throughout the scriptures the implications that these theological truths have for our lives. We talk in accounting terms sometimes of salvation being this transaction of God's righteousness to us and our sinfulness to Christ on the cross. And those truths have deep day-to-day, minute-by-minute implications to how we experience life. And I love that the the Bible is so big on how these truths impact our lives. Certainly, salvation is a great thing that we should cherish. The incredible thing about the gospel is it goes so much further beyond that. I mean, wouldn't you think that salvation is enough? It would seem that way, right? It would seem like, you know, there's, we'll just call him this guy that you have this unpayable debt to. How much, I mean, how much would you rejoice in just hearing, hey, this debt, don't worry about it. But salvation is so much more than that. Here, the infinite God that we have this infinite debt to, which is going to cost us our eternal souls, God not only forgives us that. He no longer says, you are not my enemy. Now he says, instead of being my enemy, you are my child. That's what the gospel is. That's what the transaction and salvation is. And that's what we're going to see this morning. We go from being enemies of God to being his children. It's more than just being forgiven. That in and of itself would be worth eternal worship of God, right? If it was simply a forgiveness transaction. And God said, okay, you can just go about your way and we won't bother each other anymore. But it is far beyond that. You get to become a child of God. In every second of your eternity from now on will be impacted by the fact that you are a child 
of God. He already told us in verse 26 of chapter 3 that we are children of God, but he's going to expand on that. And Paul's going to explain in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4 how the gospel is what brings us to that place of being children of God. So read with me verses 1 to 7. We're going to look at this in three different parts. We're going to look at verses 1 to 3, where Paul tells us about our status prior to Christ. And then part 2, verses 4 to 6, we're going to see that the status before Christ is not good. In verses 4 to 6, Paul's going to give us the Trinity redeeming us. We're going to see all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, active in bringing us from this prior position to intimate children of God. And then verse 7, we'll talk about the resulting privilege. And I'm just going to tell you, when we talk about the privileges of being God's children, we can't talk about that exhaustively because it's just so far beyond anything. So we'll just talk about a few implications. But that'll be the three uh, parts that we look at here. Verses 1 to 7, read with me. Paul says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Verses 1 to 3, our first part here, our status prior to Christ. Our status prior to Christ. Now, Paul's going to give an illustration. He's going to paint a picture. And just like any metaphor, illustration, it has its limitations, right? Like you can't press every point and look for some kind of deep meaning in every single point. Paul is simply trying to give us a picture. He's trying to help us understand the change of relationship that has happened for us as followers of Christ through the gospel. And the point of the picture, the point that Paul is showing us here, is that we could never come into the inheritance that God has for his children apart from Jesus Christ. Uh, The purpose that God has for us in our relationship with him, it can't be obtained through the law. It's the Judaizers who are telling you that the law must play a role here, and Paul is saying, absolutely not. It is Christ, faith in Christ, that brings us to this new relationship of sonship to God. Prior to Christ, our standing is no better than that of slaves. Prior to Christ, we cannot receive the benefits of being God's children. We can't exercise those benefits, experience 
the benefits of being God's children apart from Christ. If you look at Roman law, uh, the, during the time of Paul's writing, um, the laws that his audience, immediate audience, would have been familiar with, if you were born into even a wealthy estate, and that estate was certain to be yours at some point, you would enjoy limited privileges of that promised wealth until the Father bestowed that upon you, until the time for you to transfer from being a child to being the inheritor of the estate. You had no authority over it. You were literally the same position within the house, the same privilege is that of a slave. They would have no authority. Paul says in verse 1, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. Instead, as verse 2 tells us, they would be under the authority of guardians, trustees. He says that a slave, you would be no different at all from a slave, although you are owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the day set by the Father. In the same way, apart from Christ, we do not experience the privilege of being the children of God. Paul says instead in verse 3, before Christ, we are held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. The basic things of this world. The rudimentary teachings of this world. The philosophies, the dead ends that you see this world take you down. The world's got no shortage of philosophies. No shortage of ideas. I love 2 Timothy 3.7 where it says they are always learning never coming to the knowledge of the truth. That's the world we live in. A world that is in slavery to the elementary things of the world that lead to death and destruction. And apart from Christ, before Christ, that's the same state we're all in. That's the same state we're all in, lost and trying to find our way. And the gospel is that God doesn't leave us there. God doesn't leave us as slaves to the elemental things of this world, to the elementary principles of the world, to the destructive thought patterns and philosophy, philosophies of the world. Christ comes in. And Christ changes our status to make us sons of the Father. Just like in the Roman law, the, the father of the child, the owner of the estate, he would set a time, typically about 18 years of age. That was kind of standard, but it could be a different time. But at the time set by the father, the child would pass out from under the guardians, out from under the trustees, and they would begin to exercise authority over this inheritance. They would begin to experience the wealth and the privilege of being their father's child. All that the father owned, they could then begin to take advantage of. That's the picture that Paul's painting for us here. Before Christ, we are under the law, lost, hopeless, enslaved to the world. 
and there's nothing from a human standpoint that the law or anything else could do to bring us into the full experience of being God's children. But then Christ steps in. Part two, the Trinity redeeming us. Look at verses four to six with me and see the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, redeeming us out of this prior condition so that we can then experience the fullness of being God's children. Verses four to six. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Do you see the whole Trinity involved there? Don't you love it when, that, when, when the Bible just paints that so clearly for us? I love it. At the perfect time, the Father sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us. John 3.16. Who sent Christ to the cross? God, the Father did. Because of his love for the world. Because of the love that the Father has for those who are by nature his enemies. Isn't that remarkable? In our human wisdom, it should work the opposite way, right? If you have an incredibly great person and an incredibly bad person, and the incredibly bad person does something to the incredibly great person, you'd think, yeah, that bad person should really humble himself and go seek forgiveness from the great person, right? You wouldn't expect the great person who is completely innocent in this situation to say, you know, I know I'm superior, I know I'm innocent, but I'm going to humble myself and go seek this person's forgiveness. That doesn't make sense to us. That's what the gospel is, though, right? It's the infinitely great Father sending his Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us. And he says, when the fullness of time came, why did the Father choose to do this? 2,025 years ago? I have no idea. Like, it's interesting. You read, like, a lot of people speculate. They give you all these reasons. I think as people, we just like to find reasons. I have a feeling, and this is just me talking, if God did this at any point in time, we would go through and try to find, like, the human reasons as to why God chose this time to do it. People got all sorts of ideas. You know, the Romans, they had done a great job at this point of creating a large relatively peaceful, well-connected empire where, you know, relatively speaking, people got along from a bunch of different areas and there was a common language. And so people say, you know, this was just the perfect time for God to choose. Like, sure, maybe that's why. I don't know, though. God could really accomplish his purposes at any time he chooses. But for some reason, 2,025 years ago, the father said, now is the time. Now is the time where I'm going to penetrate human history with my son, fully God, coming in the flesh to redeem sinful humanity. The second person of the Trinity. We're about to celebrate Christmas in about two months. This is what we're celebrating here. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. God's eternal plan 
kicks into action. I think that's important for us to remember about the gospel. This was God's eternal plan. Adam and Eve didn't fall in the garden and sin, and God didn't say, oh no, I better come up with plan B here. Like, I didn't foresee this. No. Instantly, God steps in. Genesis 3.15. And instantly, God says to the woman, through your seed, singular, male, one seed, I will crush the serpent. This was God's eternal plan. The Bible makes that so clear to us. Even when you look in Revelation, it talks about the Lamb's book of life with the name of God's redeemed written before time began. This is God's eternal plan. And why he chose the middle of the Roman Empire 2,025 years ago to send his son, I don't know, but he did. He sent forth his son born of a woman, 100% God, yet 100% man. And I don't know how that works, but this is God we're talking about, for whom nothing is impossible. Jesus Christ was at one moment fully God and fully man, born of a woman. This was an historical event. This is something that truly happened. There truly was a baby born of a woman, 100% man, yet 100% God. Born under the law to fulfill the righteousness required of us, yet that we could never fulfill. God is never going to lower his standard. In Leviticus 19.2, the standard for God's people is perfect holiness. For Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The holiness of God can never be blemished. He can never lower his standard. So he had to send forth his son. God had to come himself in the flesh born under the law to accomplish redemption. It's a beautiful picture of what happened in the gospel. And in verse 5, he tells us the purpose. We don't have to wonder. So that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Those who were under the law. All of humanity, all of humanity, the expectation from all of us is righteousness. God's expectation of all of us is obedience. Each and every one of us was created by God to worship him and glorify him and to be his people and enjoy fellowship. Yet we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all born under the law into this hopeless estate, but Christ came that we might receive the adoption as sons. He came to fulfill that perfect righteousness that we needed and credit that to our account through faith so that through faith our sins would be placed on him and the penalty would be paid so that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, when you're adopted, 
you are 100% the child of the Father. You are, your status, your privilege is 100% equal to that of the biological children. And I love that. I love that. I love, I love seeing adopted families. We have so many in our church, and I love it because you get to see that lived out. They're not 99.9% children of the family. They are 100% children of the family. And they are loved and treated the exact same as any other child would be. That is the picture of adoption that we should have in mind when we become children of God. We get all the privileges. We get all the privileges of being children of the Father. So you got the Father, you've got the Son, and you got the Holy Spirit in verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. It's a familiar term if you've studied the Bible much. It's a term of endearment. It's not, it's, it's, people always, you know, equate it to us, our word, daddy. It's what the young child calls their father, daddy. It's a, it's a, it's the child that cries out to the father knowing that this is the father who loves for, loves me. This is the father I belong to. This is the father that I have a deep, intimate relationship with that provides for me, that cares for me. It's the depth of relationship that Paul's communicating to us here. It is God doesn't just enact this process of redeeming his people. He doesn't just pay the penalty on the cross for our sins, but actually comes to live within us. The Holy Spirit. Romans is so clear. If you belong to Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, dwells within you. Dwells within you. It's, uh, it's the Holy Spirit that seals us, Ephesians 1 tells us, keeps us for the day of redemption. How, does, how do we stay strong in the face of unimaginable trials and faithful in the face of unimaginable trials? It's the Holy Spirit within us. It's the Holy Spirit within us that, that keeps us faithful, that provides that strength. It's the Holy Spirit within us that continues to sanctify us. That's the other beautiful thing about um, the gospel, is it doesn't just leave you where it finds you, but it continues to transform you and shape you and mold you until the day of eternity, until the day you die and you are glorified in heaven. And it's the Holy Spirit within you doing that work. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us it's the Holy Spirit, the mind of Christ within us that gives us an understanding of the things of God so that we can open up the Bible and understand what God is telling us. This transfer from slave to being a child, or I'm sorry, to be a, being a son of God, it involves the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
we see them all at work here. And that brings us to verse 7, the resulting privilege. And what I just want to do in verse 7 is just talk about some of the implications of what it means for us to be children of the Father, sons of the Father. Verse 7, the resulting privilege, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You know what encourages us? John, First John tells us, causes us to purify ourselves. The fact that we know this world is not our home. This world is not our inheritance. Things go terribly wrong. We live in a sinful, fallen world. The problems, more than we can count. Yet, as verse 7 tells us, we are heirs through God. In heirs of an eternal kingdom, a perfect kingdom where, where God's righteousness reigns. And the, it, the problems we experience here are the effects of sin. When it comes to sickness, poverty, just relationship trouble, conflict, it's all the result of sin. And when we get to God's eternal kingdom that we are heirs of, all that will be stripped away. All that will be stripped away. And we will get to enjoy the perfect fellowship with the Father that God created us for before we chose to rebel. He's redeeming us to that state. And as, we, as John tells us in 1 John, that should cause us to purify ourselves. It changes every aspect of how we interact with this world, how we think about this world, how we get disappointed with the things of this world. We still get disappointed and we still grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope because our eternity is secure as an heir through God. So what are some of the ramifications of the privileges of being God's children, of God being our father? First of all, he provides for us, even in a material sense. God provides for us. Jesus himself drew out this implication of God being our father, the provision of God. As people, we are so prone to worrying about what we need, what we often just think we need even, right? Like it pretty often goes well beyond need to just what we want. And it consumes us. It, the, the drive for food, the drive for wealth, the drive for things far beyond even basic needs consumes us so that it's all that we think about. And if that's what you're consumed with is the things of this world, then you're not being consumed with the things of God. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus draws us out of that, right? Like, hey, your father is the heavenly father. He cares for the grass of the field. He cares for the birds. He's going to care for you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these material things. 
God will take care of it. The Father knows that you need these things. And here's the thing. He's your loving Father. Do you understand that one of the purposes for human families on earth is to give us a picture of what our relationship to our Heavenly Father is like? Now, the, the problem is we're human, right? And so very often, in fact, almost always, even the best of human fathers, they're going to regularly fall short of our perfect father. But still, it gives us the picture. A good earthly father provides for his children, provides the material needs. And the point Jesus makes is, hey, if sinful earthly fathers know how to do it, how much more does your perfect heavenly father know how to provide for you everything that you need? That should be a huge place of comfort for us because we do have needs, right? We do need clothes. We do need shelter. We do need food. We do need medicine. We need things physically. But for us as followers of Christ, this passage here should call us back to remember, hey, because of Christ and the gospel, I have a new relationship with God where he is my loving heavenly father. And as Jesus said, he knows what I need. He provides those things. He gives us protection, right? He gives us wisdom. A, a, a father, a good father, loves to teach their children things. Loves to explain things to us. How much more does your heavenly father love to teach you and grow you in wisdom? And guess what? He's given us the word of God. He's given us his word to do that. And beyond just giving us his word, as we've talked about, he's given us the spirit of God inside of us so that in conjunction with physically giving us his word, he lives inside of us to teach us. As a follower of Christ, it should be a keen desire of your heart to constantly grow in your love of God and your knowledge of God. And the Father loves to teach you. Isn't that great? The, the most important need you do have is to grow in the knowledge of God, and he promises to do that. The most important need you have is to grow in your sanctification, and he promises to do that. Hebrews 12, the discipline of God. The discipline of God is another privilege that we have as being his children. Now, that doesn't always feel like a privilege, right? Hebrews 12 is very clear with that. Like, hey, discipline, it isn't typically pleasant in the moment. Discipline can be painful. But does every loving father discipline his children? Absolutely. If you're not disciplining your children, you're not loving them. Because as people, they need to become a certain type of people, right? Like a child cannot remain a child and be successful in this life. A child must be shaped and molded to have the skills and become who they need to be to be successful in this life. Well, in the same way, you and I aren't ready for heaven. 
and we could be better servants of God. We all still have a lot of sin that we need to get worked out in our lives. And the Father loves us enough to work on us, to make us into the people that he wants us to be. This transition in verse 7 from you are being at the slave status to being a son and heir through God, it is a radical alteration. It is a radical alteration. So as we think about application, the first thing that I would say this should lead us to in terms of application is worship and praise. It, 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 it should leave us astonished to look at the gospel and think of what God has done for us. That we should have been the ones seeking his forgiveness, right? We should have been the ones who had to come up with the plan to get back to God. And unfortunately, those plans will always fall short. But God in his infinite grace has chosen himself to take the action needed for reconciliation and to take us from not only being enemies of God, or not just simply forgiving us for being enemies of God, but moving us all the way as radically far as possible in the other direction to being beloved children of God. This should cause us to just absolutely marvel at the grace of God. And what's remarkable is as much as we worship God and marvel at his grace, we probably, I can promise you, actually, we don't even understand but the smallest fraction of it. Eternity will be us growing in an eternal appreciation for just how marvelous a thing it is that God has done for us. To be made sons of God. That would be the first point of application. We should live lives of worship and gratitude for that. Second, we should grow in our knowledge of the Father. With this new relationship, we should never cease in that day-to-day -day striving to know our Father more. As good as our earthly, a good earthly father is, it's nothing compared to our perfect heavenly father. And to think that you have unlimited access to him, anytime, any day, unlimited access to the father. We all have that somebody at work, maybe, or somebody in our lives that we're like, oh, I get to hang out with them for a few minutes. Like, oh, wow, I get to spend 30 minutes with this person, or they put some time on my calendar. I can't wait. And none of those people amount to anything compared to God, our Father, and we have infinite access to Him. Don't take that for granted. When you wake up in the morning, let your habitual just reaction be, I want to spend time with the Father. I want to see what else the Father has to teach me. 
in his word. Grow in your knowledge of the Father and in your relationship with the Father. Those two points of application would be for those who know Christ, for those who have come to a place of following him. This third point would be for those who are still in the slave status. Those who would be buying the law or the the lie of the Judaizers that being right with God has to be done through your own merit. That's the lie of the Judaizers. Those who are still trying to look for a way to be right with God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. The reality is it's impossible. It's impossible. The only way to be moved from the enemy slave status to the child status is through faith in Christ, repentance, turning to him for forgiveness and trusting in him for the salvation of your soul. If that hasn't happened in your life, then you're still in verses one to three as a slave and you cannot experience being a child of God apart from Jesus Christ. That's the whole point to Galatians. Paul's giving us different pictures here. He's giving us different illustrations. He's proving his point through different avenues and ways, but the point throughout Galatians remains the same. Justification is by faith, apart from legalistic works of the law. And human history has come up with all different variations of what the Judaizers had, all different variations of how to be right with God apart from Christ, but each and every one of them is equally as damning and equally as hopeless. The message of Paul, Galatians, is absolutely clear. Justification is by faith alone in Christ. And there is no other way to be made right with God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for just the privilege of being your children. We thank you so much that you've made it crystal clear for us as to how we are reconciled with you. And we thank you so much that you loved us to put this plan of reconciliation into action and to accomplish this redemption in our lives. And I just pray that we would always be consumed with just the the reality of what you have done for us, that it would be the obsession of our lives, the driving passion of our lives, and that we would never cease to worship and glorify you for your great love for us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.